Well, we're going through the book of Ephesians, and we're at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 17, and I'm going to read it all the way through verse 32. This is a word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned, learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get started. Uh, God, we thank you just for this time, and uh, we pray, God, that you would speak to us. Uh, we pray, um, you know, most of all, as this passage uh, calls us to change, that we would experience the, you know, the power of the gospel to, to change and to transform our hearts, uh, and also the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And uh, we pray, Lord, that as you speak, you would give us ears to hear, uh, what you have to say, and give us uh, convictions where we need conviction and correction where we need correction. Uh, but most of all, help us to see uh, the goodness of who you are and the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> hey, so this is, uh, as Fred shared, this will be my last sermon uh, for six months. And I don't know uh, the last time uh, I didn't preach for like a long period of time. I don't remember when that was. Uh, but I think it'll be uh, hopefully fruitful. Um, I think uh, I, I've, uh, I'm at the bottom of the barrel in terms of creativity. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, hopefully when I come back, I'll be, um, you know, I'll be uh, refilled and have some more creative things uh, to apply in terms of uh, the biblical text. I, I heard a story about John Calvin. I think it was John Calvin. I'm not sure if it's true, but uh, he was preaching through like a book and he did something called expository preaching where he just kind of preached through a series in a book. And I think something happened and then he had to leave where he was. And then he came back like years later and then he resumed like the next passage and he just kind of kept going. Um, and I guess I was like to, to emphasize uh, it, it's God's word that speaks. And so uh, I, I probably won't do that when I get back. I don't think I'm going to go to Ephesians 5. Uh, when I come back, but uh, I like the idea of that. And, you know, we have some guest uh, preachers lined up for the next six months. And uh, one of them actually includes our, our retreat speaker. 
who was supposed to speak for us uh, at a retreat. So uh, he'll be part of that rotation. So uh, I'm excited for you all um, to hear the word from, uh, from different folks. Uh, but today, let me deliver this message from Ephesians 4. Uh, so we have been spending some time in the book of Ephesians, and uh, the reason I wanted to do it is because I just wanted us to think about the nature of the church. And we've been saying that the church itself is the fruit of the gospel because it was through the death and the resurrection of Jesus that a new humanity was created, and that finds its expression in the church. And what that means is the walls of hostility, which is something that we saw a couple sermons ago, the walls of hostility between the Jews and the non-Jews or the Gentiles have been broken down. And therefore, what was once separated uh, into these two separate groups are no longer separated. But Jesus has joined together these groups. Jesus has brought together different nations and different peoples, which means unity within the church reflects uh, the content of the gospel uh, as much as our preaching and our doctrine and what we profess to believe. And um, I don't know if that's an idea that's um, strange to most of you, but uh, it, it is true. And it's something that Leslie Newbegin uh, also said in that the church actually displays the gospel by our community, by our unity. And uh, I was trying to set up the bigger cosmic picture, or at least Paul was doing it in the first half of the book. And uh, I realized most of us aren't really living in the bigger picture all the time, but it's what we see on the ground level is what really impacts us in terms of like what the church is like uh, from our life experience. And on the one hand, uh, I think a lot of us know that the church is important and that the church should be united. But on the other hand, uh, maybe there have been times where we've seen a mixture of some of the good and the bad of the church. Uh, on the good side, we've seen people who love Jesus and want to live uh, their lives for him. And therefore, you know, are people who love and people who serve and people with integrity. But, you know, on the flip side, there's a bad side, too, where we also see pride and we see division or we see gossip or we see hypocrisy. And I think herein lies one of the tensions of being the church, because on the one hand, we should have higher expectations of a church community because believing the gospel is supposed to have some kind of impact or some kind of change upon a person who believes in it. Right. But on the other hand, that change doesn't happen along the same timeline for all people. And so there's always going to be some remnants of uh, immaturity in the church as well. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we see or experience that immaturity. Now, I always, uh, this is a saying that, that I have that I always tell my wife, uh, usually when, uh, I don't know, she's like planning a trip and throwing out ideas. But I always say to my wife, I go, you know, most of the time, I think the idea is better than the reality. And you could say that about the church as well. You know, this great lofty vision for the church uh, oftentimes is going to be better than the reality of the church. But here's the difference. The difference is God, he promises to eventually match the reality of the church to its vision. Or to put it another way, eventually the visible church will become aligned with its invisible spiritual nature uh, in the resurrection, in the end times. But with that said, we, we do live in a tension of the in-between where we are not yet fully renewed, but we are in the process of being renewed. And yet we are not like the Gentiles. We're not in the darkness. We're not living in ignorance. And I think that's what this section in Ephesians is teaching us. It's telling us how we are changed and what that looks like so that we can be the kind of community that resembles some of these invisible spiritual realities of the nature of the church. 
And so in this passage, we're going to basically look at two things. The first thing we'll ask is, how do we change? And the second thing we'll ask is, what does that change actually look like? Okay. So first, uh, how do we change? Uh, that's actually a pretty complex theological question, I think. Uh, as I mentioned before, it does require us to accept some tensions, but it also requires us to consider things on, I don't know, maybe like multiple dimensions. Uh, if, if you were to ask the average person, you know, how do people change in general? Uh, I'm not sure what the typical answer would be, but my guess is, um, you know, based on the popularity of like self-help literature, uh, people probably believe change happens with some kind of combination of knowledge or education and self-will, right? Uh, you read a self-help book, you learn some new things that may be helpful, maybe some new techniques that you can apply to your life, but then it's up to you to do it, right? It's up to your will to apply it and to change yourself. And I, I think that's probably how a lot of people would approach uh, what it is to change and now that's not necessarily uh, completely wrong because a lot of behavior can probably change with a combination of those two things. Uh, but I think that would still be a little bit too simplistic because what does it really mean to change, right? What does it mean? Uh, what does it mean uh, to change just behavior versus what does it mean to actually change the core of who you are, that internal stuff? Uh, what about the desires of the heart or the inward motivations or the intentions of a person? So uh, maybe you've had uh, some relationship issues and you buy a book and it tells you how to communicate better with others, but still your fundamental orientation towards the other person, it comes from a place of pride or a sense of superiority, or maybe your fundamental orientation is still self-centered and your greatest concern is still for your own well-being. Well, have you really changed even if your outward behavior changed and I would say no, because the core of who you are is still fundamentally the same. And so while people, you know, plenty of people have actually approached Christianity like that as kind of like the self-help program uh, for behavior modification, that is not actually what Jesus came out to accomplish. And later we'll look at some of the specific exhortations regarding like our speech and behaviors and those kind of things. But if you disconnect that from what Paul says in this first part of the passage, then you don't really get a sense of how change actually happens. And uh, you just, you know, end up choosing verses that convey a certain set of moral values, which is necessary, uh, but then you miss the bigger context in terms of uh, how that kind of change really takes place, where that power comes from. Now, the kind of change that the gospel produces, it doesn't just change the behavior of, of a person, but it is supposed to change the entirety of a person. It's, a, it's transformation, not reformation. And at the beginning, Paul says with great urgency, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And what's interesting about that uh, is, you know, uh, he, how he addresses uh, in this letter uh, the Gentiles. You know, if you remember in chapter two, Paul says like one time you Gentiles. So in the beginning, he's actually addressing the Gentiles and he's defining Gentiles in a slightly different way. He says one time you Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision. You know, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world, right? So he's addressing Gentiles as the non-Jews. And now he's telling the Gentiles not to walk as the Gentiles do. Well, in chapter two, he's talking about their identity as non-Jews, but here he's talking about Gentiles as those who are still separated from Christ. And that presupposes that those who were Gentiles in the sense that they were non-Jews, 
are in another sense, no longer Gentiles uh, in the sense that they are no longer separated from the life of God on account of Jesus. And what that assumes is they've had a, a change, a fundamental change in the core of their identity, right? Now, it's from this change of identity where I think we can start to begin to understand the foundations of Christian morality. Uh, in verse 22, Paul says to put off your old self. And then in verse 24, he says to put on the new self. And these are words that are more than just changing behavior, but it has everything to do with a new self, or we can even say a new identity. And, you know, some of the commentaries, they make note that this language of putting off and putting on is actually language related to clothing. And I think that's really interesting. You know, clothing has is an interesting way to think about uh, behavior because whether we intend it or not, what we wear does have an impact on us in terms of how we act. Uh, if you're in sweats and if you're in a t-shirt, then uh, chances are you probably act a little bit more casually. Uh, but if you're in a nice suit or if you're wearing a beautiful dress, then uh, maybe you act a little bit more formally. And I think for some people, uh, that's probably um, you know part of the reason for putting so much effort into to how you dress is because uh, if you if you look good, if you dress well, it does give you a sense of confidence. And uh, that probably helps people. And that's probably why a lot of people uh, like to dress well, right? It makes you feel good. But when Paul says to put off your old self, it's as if he's saying, right, undress yourself, like what you were wearing before, the clothes that you were wearing before, take that off, right? Undress yourself. Uh, those old behaviors that were related to sensuality and greed and the practice of every kind of impurity, take that off. And then when you take that off, put on new clothes, right? Put on your new self, put on uh, one that has been tailored and created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Wear those clothes because these new clothes were quite costly. They came at the cost of the death of Jesus, but they are for you. So put them on, right? But when these clothes are on you, it's not like you, you are not like a new person. Uh, but what Paul actually says is you are a new person, right? You become a new creation with a new identity. Now, I did say there was some complexity here. So let me go into it a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. I usually try to point out Greek when I feel like there's something lost in the English translation. And uh, in this case, I do think there is something lost in the English translation here. Uh, all right. Now, Greek grammar uh, has a tense. and uh, we don't have that tense in English, and that tense is called an aorist tense. And what an aorist tense does is it refers to a past action that has been completed. And so the words put off and put on are uh, in what is called an aorist tense, which means Paul is referring to putting off and putting on as something that has already happened, right? It's, it's a completed action in the past. That putting off and putting on has happened. When did it happen? Well, it happens when you it happened when you decided to become a Christian. It happened when your faith became personal and you decided that you wanted to receive what Jesus was offering and that you wanted to follow him and live for him, right? That's when the old self was put off and the new self was put on. And that's when you were given this spiritual identity and were made new. Uh, but just as we've been saying about the church, you know, the that the invisible spiritual realities do not always align with what we see. And so the same can be true about an individual, uh, it may be true that you have been given a new spiritual identity, 
but you may not be living in line with that identity. So Paul says you have a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, but does your life look like it? Does your life align with it? And if not, he's exhorting us, right, to start being who you are, right? Be who you are. You see that? The moral imperative doesn't come from a place of like achievement of like, do this and act this way so that, you know, the Lord will love you and accept you and receive you. But no, it's, it's actually rooted in identity. This is who God made you to be. This is who God redeemed you to be. This is the identity that you have been given in Christ and therefore act like it. You see that? Now, uh, this kind of thing doesn't happen uh, much anymore. Um, but, you know, I think most of us come from Asian cultures. And so maybe you'll, you'll, you'll kind of understand this. Um, but in the West, we're very individualistic. But man, imagine you... You grow up in a small town or a small community and your family has this reputation of being very, very hard workers. And um, you know, everyone knows you know, the Kims or the, the Lees or uh, the Parks or whomever, right? Uh, this family works really hard. But then one of the children from that family, they get a job and uh, in that job, they're just really lazy and they don't work hard at all. And they show up to work late. And uh, maybe the way that the child is rebuked is like this, you know, don't be lazy because, right, we Kims are not lazy people, right? Kims are hard workers. And uh, if like that kind of uh, a sense of rooted in, in identity, you're part of this wider community. So not only is morality rooted in a kind of identity, but morality also has this kind of corporate nature. Uh, your actions don't just reflect yourself, but they also reflect the family that you belong to. And you see some of that actually in uh, verse 25, when Paul says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members uh, one of another. And so even there, he's connecting like how we speak. It's, it's not just about you, the individual, but speak truth with neighbor because we are a part of this community. Now, uh, this does bring us to the second half of the passage, and uh, it shows us what change looks like. Now, <clears throat> There's a lot of instructions here. <laughs> this is actually kind of a very deep, rich passage um, and probably, you know, better to go through slowly. But uh, there's a lot of instructions here and we can't reflect on all of them in detail. But if you if you look at all of them, uh, they all have to do with how we relate to uh, one another in the context of community or in relationship. So the first part has to do with things like our speech or our anger or uh, our contribution. So with respect to our speech, we should speak the truth with our neighbor. And we saw a little bit of this last week when Paul says to speak the truth in love. And I think we live in a culture where we uh, maybe use words somewhat flippantly. Uh, maybe it's because we're used to a digital culture. Uh, we're used to writing words and then having the ability to kind of edit them or delete them in an instant. Um, I wonder what would happen if Twitter required everybody to, you know, handwrite their tweets out by hand. And I wonder if there would be more thought into it. I, I don't know. But um, I think regardless, uh, we, we were probably not as careful with our words uh, as uh, we should be. There's a book that I read a, a while ago, a couple of years ago, and it's by a, a scholar named Marilyn McIntyre. And she wrote a book called Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies. And it was basically based on a set of lectures that she gave at Princeton Seminary in 2004. And uh, I think that means she saw some of the direction that our culture was heading even uh, way back then, but 
Uh, it's a book that I want to, I hope to look at again uh, during my sabbatical. But from what I remember of it, she was trying to argue that caring for words is actually a moral issue because what, when words are uh, misused to spread falsehood, it, it ends up causing a lot of damage. And she, I think, cites some historical examples. So she refers to an essay by George Orwell where he laments how language has been co-opted and twisted to serve corporate or commercial or political agendas through propaganda or through imprecision or through cliches. And then she talks about uh, George Steiner and how Steiner reflects on how the Third Reich used the German language to spread propaganda and falsehoods. And I even heard that in the German dictionary, they differentiate between like the German definition of a word and the Nazi definition of a word. Uh, it didn't take much for her to convince me because I, I actually think we're living in it uh, now in some of the topics uh, for public discourse. You know, there's a lot of terms that lack precise definitions, uh, which tends to be accompanied by a lot of name calling that actually hinders honest discourse and promotes greater division. And, uh, you know, I'm not here trying to give a social analysis here, but my basic point is how we speak to one another is incredibly important for attaining unity and maturity in community. Uh, speech, words, they matter. Next, we come to anger. Now, anger is not entirely disconnected from truthful speech. In verse 26, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Uh, now, if you read that fast, you might assume he's saying, do not be angry and do not sin. But that's not what he says. He's actually exhorting us to be angry, but to not sin in that anger. And this is this verse has probably puzzled a lot of people. Um, but I think it makes a little more sense when you figure out where, what Paul is doing. He's, he's actually quoting from Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. And in Psalm 4, David is saying things like, How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And so the context of the psalm is that falsehoods are being spread, and those falsehoods are bringing about unjust shame. And when Paul says, Be angry and do not sin, you know, I think it's entirely possible that maybe he's connecting that with speaking the truth, right? Be angry when lies and falsehoods are being spread and uh, causing injustice or causing division, but do not sin in that anger, right? Uh, in other words, you should be angry at lies. You should be angry at things like injustice, but do not allow those lies and injustice to cause you to react in unrighteousness and sin. Uh, Psalm 4.4 says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And I do wonder if that's maybe why a little bit of why Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, it could be just good advice of reconciling before the sun goes down. Uh, but it could also be saying, you know, don't let your anger fester and uh, dwell in your heart. Look to the Lord and put your trust in him so that your anger does not end up controlling you. Next thing he says, if you are a thief, stop stealing. Uh, stealing is taking and consuming without contributing and producing. And it's not wrong to take an apple from a tree in the farm if you actually labored to grow that tree on the farm. But if you just kind of stroll in and eat that apple without doing any of the work, then all you're doing is just taking and consuming and you're not making any kind of contribution. A new self is not someone who wants to take and consume all the time, but a new self is one who wants to share and contribute to anybody in need. Uh, now, the rest of the commands. I think will more or less fit into these categories, except for one. And, you know, I did like these like tiny, really quick uh, reflections on maybe some of the specific ones, but there's one I didn't mention, and it's probably one of the most important ones, and it's forgiveness. 
you find that in the final verse. And Paul says to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. And that is significant for several reasons. First, it does show us that Paul recognized that Christian community won't attain perfection immediately. Uh, I mentioned the aorist tense before, but you know, sandwiched in between these aorist tense of putting off and putting on, there is a verb that says be renewed, right? Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And that verb is actually not in the aorist, meaning it's not a completed past action. It's in a progressive tense. That means there is this progression where we are constantly undergoing this process of renewal because God is actively in the process of renewing us. And if that's true, then we are going to mess up and we are going to fall short of aligning ourselves to the new self created after the likeness of God. And if we're going to fall short, that means we need forgiveness, right? I've mentioned this in the past, but you know, with some of these uh, social issues and some of these cultural uh, ideologies and narratives, you know, we have to be careful that we aren't adopting the entire secular narrative or secular theories. You know, as a tool, I think these theories can be useful to get some understanding. Um, but what I find in missing a lot of these narratives, there's no narrative of redemption. There's no narrative of forgiveness, right? Um, you know, if you're declared to be a racist, you're always a racist, and therefore you there's there's no forgiveness possible for the racist. Uh, but that's of central concern in Christian community, right? I'm sure uh, you know anti-Semitic is more of a modern term, but let's say like there were people who hate Jews in the ancient world, like in the Gentile community, right? Well, there has to be. I'm sure that there had to be forgiveness extended uh, even back then. Uh, I know the Jews probably hated Gentiles, especially when uh, a Gentile person like married um, uh, like somebody from the Jewish community, right? <clears throat> that was they, they hated each other. But Paul is saying you, you have to have these narratives of forgiveness um, in order to right, align yourselves in this united community. There is an assumption that people in the community will offend and hurt one another. But in order to attain unity, you have to have a mechanism to maintain the bonds of peace, even in the midst of great offense and great hurt. And that mechanism is forgiveness. And the good news is forgiveness should not be a foreign concept to anybody in the Christian community because God in Christ has already demonstrated forgiveness to us. We do believe in a crucified Christ. We do believe his blood procured the forgiveness of sin, so that any walls of hostility might be removed between God and us. God created that unity of fellowship with us by paying that ultimate price of forgiveness. And therefore, a community that has received God's forgiveness ought to be able to extend that forgiveness to one another, to a brother or sister in community. Now, if not, there's spiritual consequences to that, right? What are the spiritual consequences? Paul says we give an opportunity to the devil to further divide the people of God. Uh, a spiritual consequence, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, if we were to flip to the end of Ephesians, Paul talks about spiritual warfare. And I think the concept of spiritual warfare is entirely appropriate when thinking about unity. You know, in conflict, we tend to make it our goal to, uh, you know, we tend to make the opposition uh, our enemy, and therefore we, we make it our goal to defeat them, right? But the reality is our opposition is against the devil, and therefore we should be united to defeat him. 
And more importantly, our collective desire is to please the spirit of God and not to grieve him. That should be the last things we want, want to do, to grieve the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it should be our highest priority to please God and to pursue the unity of the church uh, in our speech, uh, in, our, in our actions, in our behavior, in the ways that we contribute and serve to one another. And uh, least of all, uh, we don't want to be divisive people. Um, and that can come out in a lot of ways. Uh, but we want to be a faithful witness uh, to the power and the message of the gospel, not just in what we preach and proclaim, although that's incredibly important, but also in the composition of what our church looks like. And you know, one of the things Jesus prays for in his last prayer uh, in John 17, that we would be one and that the world would know his love uh, when, he, when the world sees that the church is one. And uh, we have every resource to be able to align ourselves um, with that. Why? Because we've been made into a new creation. Uh, in Christ, we have put off our old self and put on a new self in the likeness of God. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you <clears throat> um, that, uh, you know, you don't call us to change by uh, willing it within ourselves and to draw power within ourselves. Uh, you don't say, here are my instructions, here are my demands, now go do it. Uh, but we thank you, God, that first, uh, you acted first, that you reached out to us, that you uh, reached out beyond the walls of hostility to us, that you've extended uh, forgiveness to us first, that you've offered yourself and uh, the hand of fellowship first, and uh, uh, you did that at a great cost of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and because of that, we know that that's had reverberations um, across um, uh, many planes. Uh, we know that uh, that started something within our hearts where we've begun this process of being renewed, where you are changing and transforming and renewing the desires of our hearts, uh, our entire beings, our entire selves. Uh, and that that will show up in, in the fruit of how we act, how we talk, what we do. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to be vigilant uh, spirit, spiritually and uh, not give uh, the devil a foothold. Uh, anytime there's a sense of somebody is annoying or I don't agree with that person or I want to stay away from that person or uh, I wish that person weren't here, uh, I pray, God, that you would lead us quickly to repentance and you would help us to uh, pursue unity. Um, help us not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but help us to uh, please you and uh, be faithful to you and uh, be a, um, a visible witness to the power of the gospel uh, in a world that feels especially divided today. Uh, may we be one because Christ has made us one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.